or the NBA, or anything actually. Good music. I'm, uh, I've got a lot of free time on my hands right now. I'd love to hang out with you. So, okay, back to Luke. Here we go. Let's jump in. Um, the, the Gospel of Luke thus far has driven us to one pervasive pressing question that's asked about three different times in, in the last block of text that we read last week. And it's, who is this man? It's on the words of Herod. It's on the words of Jesus himself as he asks his disciples. People will want to know who Jesus is. And uh, for the first time since maybe chapter 2 or 3, we get a very, very clear answer that Jesus agrees to. That he is the Christ, that is, the promised king who's come, and the son of man, the one who's going to give his life as a sacrifice for his people. It was very terse, uh, very condensed back there, and didn't really unpack it yet, but he's going to begin to do so now. Uh, it raises a couple interesting questions, though. We're in chapter 9, there's 24 chapters in Luke. What's up with a dying king? What do you do with a king that predicts his own death? How do you follow a king that plans to die? So got more than half the book to go. Uh, moreover, why would you follow a king that plans to die imminently? I mean, seriously, these are real serious questions. We're only halfway through the book, and Jesus says, I'm dying, like, very soon. How are you supposed to follow that guy? Why should you? So uh, the text is Luke 9, verses 28 to 62. It's a long one, but lots of, uh, lots of amazing things are happening. Pay attention. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who were with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he was saying these, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, he's my only child. Behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth, and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him in his side, and put him by his side, and said to him, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. 
Verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to go and tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Good Father, there's a lot of hard words in these texts and some confusing ones. And uh, we are more than halfway through the semester and a little dull of mind and perhaps hard and weary of heart. Uh, we need your help. Show us great things in your law. Show us your goodness, Lord Jesus. Press them into reality, the gospel into reality in our hearts. Be with me in my weakness. And we ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I told this story before, and I don't remember the last time I told it. Perhaps none of you remember it or knew it to begin with. But a long time ago, I lived in St. Louis, and I was going to a friend's wedding. The wedding was in Nashville. That's normally an eight-hour drive. I was riding with a friend of mine from St. Louis to Nashville. This was a drive that both of us had made many times. He was from Georgia. He went this way. I had been that way a number of times. And uh, we were a couple miles, a couple hours outside of St. Louis. And we had to be there on time because we were a part of the wedding. We were a couple hours outside of St. Louis, cruising along, chatting, talking about who knows what. When I look up and see a sign, an interstate sign overhead that says, Now entering Missouri. Now, if you're bad at geography, that's really bad news. Because I was not heading to Missouri. I was heading to Nashville. Nashville's not in Missouri. Nashville's in Tennessee. And I left Missouri, like St. Louis. It was back there, three hours. Um, and so what I did next was a bit curious. For the next 10 to 15 minutes, I just sat. I wasn't driving in the passenger side seat, and we just kept driving, quietly talking, until finally the guy driving the car said, Hey, did you see that sign? I was like, Yeah, I saw it. <laughs> we pulled over, figured out where we were, and what to do about it. Uh, why do we do that? Well, I think we were both deeply confused. We didn't understand how in the world we'd made this mistake and how it had happened. We were afraid to admit it. We'd become complacent in our confidence, basically, because we knew this way so well that we had stopped paying attention to the signs. Frankly, I don't remember any other signs on that whole trip besides that one that told me I was on the wrong way. And, uh, and also, deep down, I'll have to admit that even once I saw the sign, there was still this tiny little hope deep in the back of my irrational mind that said, maybe if we keep going this way, it'll be okay after all. It's crazy. The disciples are doing something like this, and I'm convinced we do too. The disciples are on a journey with Jesus right now, and Jesus is telling them exactly where he has to go. He tells them a couple times in this text, verse 44, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Verse 51, he sets his face for Jerusalem. The, the, the interstate signs are clear for Jesus. He's making it clear to his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem down across. That's the plan. That's where we're heading. Uh, but the disciples aren't getting it. 
like us that day in the car, they are confused. They're quiet when they should be asking good questions. Um, it's clear where he's headed. As we read the text, they're not heading there. They're trying to go over there. Are they dumb? Are they stupid? What's going on? It, it becomes clear as we look at their text that they, they don't understand. Because they don't listen. Because they don't understand. Because they don't listen. And as we examine the disconnect going on there, I think we'll see ourselves quite a bit. Uh, how we're often like them. How we struggle to understand what God wants from us and why it's good for us. And how to follow as we should. We're often confused uh, where he's taking us and what that entails. Or sometimes we're very confident that we're on the right path, even if deep down we're not so confident. And then we have a moment of reckoning where we stop and realize, how did I get here? How did, how did this series of small decisions and behaviors land me here, so far from where I thought I was going to be, so far from who I wanted to be? And the brutal truth behind the text and the reality for most of us is it's because we fail to listen to Jesus. Because we fail to listen to Jesus. The, the, the good news of this text is really quite abundantly clear. The bad news is that it's really hard. The good news is uh, Jesus is God's last and best word. And the, the hard news is we should listen to him. He's the last best word from God the Father. And we should listen to him. Now some of you who may be here as skeptics or cynics are saying, well, it's easy for you to say, um, but why should I listen to him? How can I listen to him? And those are all good questions, and I intend to answer them as best I can. So uh, here are the questions we're going to work on today. Uh, why we can listen, and why we don't listen, and why we should listen. Okay? Why we can, why we don't, why we should. So let's start with why we can listen. So... Uh, Pretty amazing story kicks this thing off. I've climbed some amazing mountains in my life, really have. Number of 14ers, had great experiences, never want to do it again though. And, um, because I'm lazy. Um, but never had a mountaintop experience quite like this one. And uh, so Peter, James, and John go on a hike with Jesus. And while they're on top of this unnamed mountain, um, Jesus is uh, exalted. God shows himself. One of the reasons we can listen to God and, and know who he is and what he wants from us is because God is willing to show himself. We see it in this text. And uh, upon the top of this mountain here, uh, Jesus is transfigured, the text tells us. He's suddenly ablaze in glory. This is my chapter. And um, it reminds me of this uh, little clip from Calvin and Hobbes. I was talking about Calvin and Hobbes with someone earlier in the week where Calvin makes a, a box. Uh, he doesn't make a box. He makes a transmogrifier and has a dial where he can change himself into, like, I see some smiles. He can change himself in, like, into a dinosaur and all these other things. Um, and that'd be great to have those kind of things. Uh, I don't really have one, though. It'd be nice. Um, that, that may be the kind of thing we're having in our mind when we hear about Jesus being transfigured, that he's becoming something he's not. But that's actually not what's going on here. This is more like a great revealing or unveiling. What's becoming clear here uh, in this transfiguration is exactly who Jesus really is. This isn't an unmasking. Um, Jesus, his glory is being revealed before his disciples, and it becomes clear to them 
maybe not fully who he is, but that he is not a normal man like they are. And, and then you see in his excellent company that uh, he, he's something, something else, someone else, and that God desires to speak through him. Uh, if you look at verses 33, 30 through 33, you, you see this excellent company, uh, Moses, Elijah. These are some old guys, really old, like dead. Uh, Old Testament prophets. One of them wrote the entire Pentateuch. The other was a prophet par excellence as well. They both met with God on a mountain and a cloud enveloped them. Something like it's going to happen in just a moment. And frankly, actually, if you take the whole company on top of the mountain, it's pretty impressive. Moses and Elijah, who wrote a bunch of books in the Bible. And then right now, even though Peter, James, and John are pretty much clueless and barely awake and clueless, uh, before it's all over, before this book's over, they're going to write like seven or eight of their own Gospels, or long accounts, or letters. Uh, These are all men through whom God chose to reveal Himself, to show Himself. So, pretty impressive crowd on top of the mountain with Jesus, but the most impressive guest comes last, verse 34. A cloud came and enveloped them. Um, It's not Pittsburgh, it's not like clouds rolling all the time. Uh, This is special. On top of a mountain, this cloud comes and speaks. This happens twice in the Old Testament. This is God's physical manifestation of His glory. The way He reveals and conceals Himself. And He comes and He speaks. And what He says in verse 35 is really significant. This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. Significant for lots of reasons. But you know, I'll start off with this. God speaks twice directly. Like there's a voice from heaven twice in the book of Luke. In other words, God the Father is pretty sparse with his words. He doesn't say much, all right? And when he does speak, both times he says pretty much the exact same thing. This is my son, right here. The overwhelming thing that Luke wants us to get, that the Father wants us to get, is how much Jesus means to the Father. It's how much Jesus means to the Father. It's amazing. God doesn't say much in the whole book, but when he speaks, he says, this is my son. Listen to him. And uh, he, he gives a fuller job description, basically, of who Jesus is. Not just my son, my kingly son. That's the divine son, the king. My chosen one. That's the office of the servant that we talked about last week. This is a priestly office. This is the promised one who's going to make a great sacrifice for his people. It goes all the way back to the, back to the book of Isaiah. And that last phrase, listen to him, that thing has been lingering around in the Old Testament for about 1,800 years. After Moses, as Moses was about to hang it up and retire, he predicted in Deuteronomy 18, there's going to be a prophet like me who's going to come. When he comes, listen to him. Jesus is the king and the prophet and the priest that everyone's been waiting for. And now he's here, unlike anyone else. Now, I want you to notice one other thing about this before we move on really quickly. Uh, Really curious, you probably missed this, but that's why I'm paid the big bucks. Um, God the Father says, not, you are my son. Right? He doesn't say, you are my son. What does he say? This is my son. He says, this is my son. Now, If this was a fraternal father-son visit reunion, that was the main intent of this, wouldn't that be a little weird? Wouldn't it be a little strange? Imagine your parents live on the other side of the country and they drove all the way here and they met you in your room. And uh, talking to your roommate instead of you right off the bat, they they would say, not like, 
Brandon, my son, love you so much. But they would say to your roommate, like, this is my boy. Isn't he great? It would be just a little bit weird. And that's what's going on here. It's a little bit weird. Because the point is not that the Father has come to reassure Jesus, although I think he has. The point is that the Father has come to make a confession to the disciples and all the rest who are willing to hear that this guy is unlike everyone else. This is his son. The Father speaks here for the sake of the disciples and for the sake of us to listen. Like This is an identification. This is the best witness in the world, the best character witness in the world. God the Father saying, this one right here is my son. You need to listen to him. So for 300 years, at least, you have an intellectual tradition. You don't, maybe not know this if you don't like to play around with philosophy, but I do. That has basically told us that we cannot know God or hear God. That revelation, historically speaking, is unreliable. And uh, I think that's actually, um, well, to be quite blunt, uh, hogwash, intellectually, philosophically. Uh, And I'm willing to talk about that at length with anyone that wants to do so. Uh, But I just want to make this point. Really clearly, you have witnesses in this text, in Elijah, Elijah and Moses, that basically sum up the entire Old Testament. And by hanging out with Jesus, they're basically saying, hey, all the Old Testament points to Jesus. We're here with him. This is all about him. We're here to talk to Jesus about the departure he's about to accomplish because the whole Old Testament story is driving to him. And then you have these future writers of the New Testament, Peter and James, there as well. And they're going to finish writing what Jesus did. And they're pointing back to what Jesus did. And then you have the ultimate witness, God the Father. And they're all pointing and saying, Jesus is God's last best word. This is the Son. We need to listen to Him. Peter... The text makes it clear here that these guys see this amazing thing and they go away and they don't tell anyone. But later in life, both John and Peter write it. You can go check it. First John chapter 1, he starts off, the very first thing John says is, we saw it, we touched it, we know it for sure. And Peter talks about it in Second Peter chapter 1. You should go read this, it's great. And he says, hey, I know you think this was some cleverly designed myth. It was not a myth. I heard the voice. I saw the glory. Peter's saying, this, this actually happened. And Jesus isn't just someone we fabricated and made up. It, he actually was God's Son, fully revealed in glory, that came to make God known to us. In other words, God has spoken so we can know Him. We can hear from Him. The question is then, why don't we listen? I need to hurry up. I'm going to increase the speed here. Hang on. Uh, why don't we listen? Well, let's take a, a test case from the disciples. Establish the fact they don't listen. Okay, craziest day of their life on a mountain. They hear God's voice. Okay, that hasn't happened to you. Okay, you never had a day like that. They hear God's voice say, listen to Jesus. Okay, you would think that they would do that then, right? <laughs> Having heard God the Father on a mountain say, listen to him, that they would do that. Well, the next day, <laughs> one day later... After Jesus did this amazing miracle, while everyone's marveling, Jesus tells them, uh, I need to remind you guys that while you're all celebrating this miraculous thing, I need to go to Jerusalem and die. The Son of Man's going to be delivered into the hands of men. And delivered here is not like packaged in a box and delivered for Christmas. It means abandoned and betrayed. Uh, and actually the one doing the abandonment is the Father. This is God's plan for Jesus. And in other words, uh, you're, you're thinking this is the glory story going up, gentlemen, but wrong. I'm heading down toward the cross. And, and, the, and the text makes it really clear in verse 45 that they don't understand and they don't ask. 
Does that sound like listening to you? Is that listening? That's very bad listening. That's like the kind of listening that like, sort of my kids listen with. That's the difference when your parents differentiate between listening and hearing. Oh, I heard what you said. No, you didn't. If you heard what I said, you would do it. The, the, the words may have passed through their ears, but they did nothing to try to understand it. And uh, what happens is, in the next 30, 20, 30 verses, they, they exhibit how they don't understand. Um, and it's, full, it's on full exhibit, actually. Uh, a couple things here, really interesting. First, we see it before this even happens with Peter. Okay, set the scene. They're on the mountain. Old dead prophets should freak you out. Jesus' manifest glory should freak you out. God in a cloud coming should freak you out. In other words, you should be really quiet. And Peter is doing what? Talking. He's actually devising a plan. He's advising Jesus. Why don't you stay here, and I'll go get some tents, and we'll just all stay here. He's making a crackpot plan. Where does he get off? I mean, seriously, who does he think he is? Maybe you should mind your place. I don't know. Maybe you should be quiet. The greatest prophets ever are assembled on the mountain. Jesus' glory is burning through, and you're going to start talking. Uh, He's still talking. He he can't listen because he won't stop talking. And the disciples are afraid to ask. What are they afraid of? Maybe they're afraid they're going to be foolish or appear stupid to Jesus. But Jesus already knows they're foolish and doesn't understand. Maybe they're afraid that their peers are going to think they're foolish. But they're all foolish and don't understand. I think what they're really afraid of is the clarity. That Jesus will tell them, no, I really do have to go and die. Because they don't want that to happen. It crosses their agenda. We'll talk about that in a moment. And uh, what happens in the next 15 or 20 verses in these three or four episodes make it really clear that these guys have a fundamental misunderstanding about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a part of His work and His kingdom. In verse 46, right after Jesus says, I have to go die, and they don't understand, what do they do? They don't ask for an explanation. They have an argument about who's the greatest. I don't really, I, I struggle to come up with an explanation of what this is like an analogy. This is sort of like this. You go to Thanksgiving dinner, and in the middle of a political fight at your table, your grandmother decides to let everyone know that she has cancer. And she has less than a year to live. And after staring awkwardly around the table for like five or six seconds, and a few people ask a few pertinent questions, at the table, you begin to fight over who gets the dresser, and who gets the house? And who gets the old Buick in the, in the garage? I mean, seriously. Jesus has just predicted his death. That he has to go die. And they're fighting about who's the greatest. And in the, in the very next verse, it's crazy. They do not understand. Jesus is saying, I have to go lay down my life as a servant. And they're like, I'm going to be the greatest one. Uh, and, and <laughs> verse 49, same problem. Uh, you know, Jesus brings a child to them and says, you've got you to be like one of these kids. It's, the kingdom's about humility. Verse 49, after this humility speech, Jesus, we saw an outsider, not one of us, doing things in your name. Should we stop him? Uh, no. No. And then again, later, uh, in verse 54, after this humility speech, and, and not to be exclusive, and if they're not against us, they're for us. Hey, uh, those Samaritans that didn't welcome us, should we destroy them? Uh, no. They don't get it. 
They think the kingdom is all about power and prestige and getting what they want. And, and Jesus is about humility and patience. Like That's what he's showing with them. Tremendous patience. And uh, they don't understand what the kingdom's like because they don't understand the king they follow. They don't get it. So if they don't get it, then maybe they need a hearing exam. And if you give them a hearing exam, I think what you find is, yes, they're hearing Jesus' voice, but they have all these other voices too. And, and the loudest one might be their own agenda. Their own idea of what the kingdom's supposed to be like and what the king's supposed to be like. What a friend of mine calls a glory story. And their glory story is that Jesus is the Messiah, the king has come, he's going to defeat all the bad guys, put them under a big flat rock, and then he's going to reign and they get like nice positions in the cabinet. It'll be great. That's their plan. This is why Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him in other Gospels when Jesus says, you're right, I'm the Christ, I have to go die. No, you can't do that. You can't do that because it ruins my glory story. And uh, what's going on here is sort of a, I don't know, jumping the gun of the story, being a little premature in their idea of when they get glory. Um, Jesus takes them up on the mountain, and they get a view of that glory just for a second, a glimpse of it. And it's like it's intoxicating. Like, this is what we want. This is, we'll just never go home again. How's that? And we'll, we'll get tents and bring them up here. And we'll just stay here in glory forever. And, and the nations can just come here instead of us going down there and engage in a broken world. How's that sound like for a plan? I think this is something like this is going on in, in Peter's cracked, owled brain. The glory is great. But they can't stay up there. Because Jesus isn't staying up there. Jesus is not staying on the mountain in glory. The vision's over, and while he's still like barely shutting up while God is interrupting him, Jesus is already on his way back down the mountain to enter the broken world, to bring the kingdom to bear there. This is what Jesus does. He's the king that engages the world, that comes to bring healing. I don't think they can hear what Jesus is saying because they have their own agenda, their glory story. We've got ours too. And then secondly, fear. The fear that uh, keeps them from asking for clarification. The, the fear that they're not going to get what they want. The fear that uh, Jesus is right. That, it, that following him will entail having to live a life like his. This J-curve I meant. We want the glory story. You know. We work really hard and it's like a straight ascent to happiness. I don't think any of you planners that planned your life actually planned like the hard days and the days you'll get fired or, or demoted or like the really, really difficult person in your office that's going to make you uh, want to quit your job or the day your car breaks down or the mice in your apartment. Any of you that planned your life, did you plan any of those things? I didn't think so. They're all going to happen. Um, well, maybe not all of them, but those things are going to happen. We, we think our glory story is this like unending Escalator to easy trajectory. Maybe not easy. We still got to climb it, you know. But there's there's no room for descent and suffering. And Jesus says, to follow after me, you got to take up your cross and deny yourself. Down before you get the glory. Uh, There's this uh, study done a couple years ago on something called inattentional deafness. Anyone heard that phrase? You have. All a nod. Um, so I could be wrong about what this means, but I don't think so. Uh, basically, you may have seen this. Uh, they did a visual test where uh, they, they put up a bunch of x-rays before like radiologists, and their job was to like diagnose whatever was going on in the lungs of this individual. And they were so carefully studying the minutiae of the lungs that they, they missed like the little gorilla that they put into the x-ray. Have you, have you seen this? 
Now, they literally, like, drew a little gorilla into, like, the right lobe of the lung of, like, all these x-rays. And these radiologists who study x-rays for a living, none, like, most of them didn't even notice a gorilla. They're so busy looking for the minutiae of the lungs. Well, inattentional deafness is the same thing. They, they figured, this probably works with hearing, too. And what they did was they gave people, subjects, a very simple test. They had to, like, pick the longest of two arms and pick the ones with the different colors, something on their screen. They had to pay attention very carefully. At the same time, they listened in through headphones to white noise. And occasionally, a beeping sound. White noise all the time, occasionally a beeping sound. Uh, when, when the test was easy, people listened and they could hear the beeping sound. When the test got hard and they were locked in, they didn't hear the beeping sound. Later on, they uh, decided to keep the test hard and uh, remove the white noise. They still didn't hear the beeping sound. It's really interesting. Humans have the ability, when we're locked in and focused on what we really want, what we're trying to do, to completely ignore other things. And I think that's what's going on with the disciples. They're locked in on their agenda. They've got the white noise of their plans and fears going on. And they can't hear what Jesus is saying. And the same is true for us. We're busy on our glory story. We've got our agenda. We've got our plan. And and our plan looks like I've got to pass this test so I get this grade. So it doesn't fall into place there. So I can do that next year. So I can get this job. So I can be this person. So I can marry that person. So I can do this. Not all of you are like that. Maybe your agenda is more like I've got to get to level 47 of this game by the night. So that I can. But you have different issues. Anyway. um, And meanwhile, you have the white noise playing through your ear, earphones like never before in, in any culture's history, I think. Frankly, there is more stimuli, more voices in your head than ever before. I, I firmly believe it. You literally have at your fingertips thousands of voices. I'm not saying you're like mentally ill. No, but never before have you had like immediate access through social media to what everybody that you know thinks about something. Never before. Never had it before. Buzzing in your ears is popular opinion. 57 different news stories on every issue. It's all there and you're hearing it all. Parental expectations, cultural expectations, cultural condemnations, all your friends, peer pressure, everything playing while you're focusing on that. And somewhere quietly in the back, Jesus' voice beeping every now and then. Can you actually hear it? Can you hear it? Can you, can you turn down the white noise and all the distractions enough to hear it, to hear what he's saying? Can you actually lay aside your agenda to pay attention to what he wants and who he is and what he wants for you? Why should we listen? Why should we listen? Well, uh, to make it clear, I'm going to wrap this up pretty quickly. Uh, we should listen because Jesus is not just an important figure on the mountain with Moses and Elijah and James and John and Peter. He's the final word. He's the, he's the last authority. Uh, you know, God the Father wants us to listen to these other men as they wrote in Scripture, but He only said about Jesus, listen to Him. Uh, it's Jesus who's the author of Scripture speaking through these individuals. He is the last, final, ultimate authority. It's Him. And uh, that's a very, very unpopular message. Today, it's, it's pretty much been an unpopular message forever. Um, that's nothing new. 
I, I know it's not popular. What's, what's popular is popular opinion. The latest, uh, the, the zeitgeist of the day. What's, what's popular is uh, autonomous reason or autonomous objectivism. Those are big fancy words. Uh, I'll break it down. Autonomous reason means you have the right as a thinking individual to decide what you'll believe, what's right and wrong on the basis of your pure reason. And we love this. But we don't love it as much as we love something else. Autonomous subjectivism. If this is getting really philosophical for you, hang on. I'm about to describe every song you love. Autonomous subjectivism is the, the, the deep-rooted belief that you as an individual have the right to do, think, feel, believe anything you want on the basis of your feelings. On the basis of your feelings. That because you're an individual, you have the right to believe or feel, do anything you want based on how you feel about things. Uh, and here's a diagnostic for you. Do, 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 do. do you just love the just listen to your heart messages of today's movies and songs? Have you planned your future and it looks like that perpetual easy climb? Do you think you deserve all the good things that have come your way? Or are you sometimes frustrated because things don't seem to be going your way and you don't like people, uh, the people you're surrounded by? Are you bitter because you think you deserve better than what you're getting? Do you know that Scripture calls you to something hard, like loving your enemy? But you invent 1,000 excuses to ignore that text, because those people don't deserve it. Do you conveniently ignore parts of the Bible that challenge you to think, believe, and feel differently? I think the answer for almost all of this is that, yes, we do almost all those things to different degrees. And it's because, frankly, we think we have the right to. And, uh, and ultimately, what this text is saying is, no, Jesus has the right. He's the last word. He's the ultimate authority. I know the word authority when I hear it makes some of you cringe. And it's because you've had authority figures in your life that you don't respect, that didn't care for you and love you well. This is different. By the way, this is really hard. Uh, maturing in life, for some of you, will be coming to realize that having yourself as your ultimate authority is also not good for you. That's a hard one, but it's true. Um, that Jesus cares for you better than, than you do. And uh, that's what we see in this last point right here. He's not only the, 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 the final word, but the, the, the good word, the best word. Uh, Jesus here in verse 31, it's, it's said by Peter, well, it's said by Moses, and uh, that Moses and Elijah and Jesus are discussing something, and they're discussing the departure which he's about to accomplish. See that? They're talking about the departure he's about to accomplish. That's a really euphemistic way of describing crucifixion. That Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to die. This text calls that an accomplishment. Isn't that a weird way to describe death? I mean, his death is pretty much outside of Christianity viewed as a shame, um, as an embarrassment. At the time, it was almost universally viewed that way. The disciples didn't understand it. God's plan behind the scenes was that what Jesus was doing and going to die for his people was not some terrible tragedy. It was an accomplishment. This was God's plan. It was his plan because God, crazy in love with his people, was willing to give his own son, the king, the final authority, over to die for his people. Because he loved them. That makes Jesus, who's the final word, the best word. You, you can trust him because he's better for you and loves you more than anyone you ever know. And he loves you better than you love yourself. 
quick story, then we're done. There was a movie a number of years ago called Stranger Than Fiction. Really great movie. And uh, in that movie, there's a guy named Harold Crick. He's a, 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 a tax accountant. Um, lives a really boring life. And uh, pretty much nothing ever happens to him. He's a man of routine. He does the same exact same thing every day. Same number of vertical brush strokes when he brushes his teeth. That kind of stuff. Until one day he starts to hear voices. And uh, not really voices, more like voice. One voice. And it's the narrator's voice. It's the narrator's voice saying stuff like, And this morning, like every morning, Harold Crick woke up and brushed his teeth 44 times. And, uh, of course, like anyone that hears a voice, they think they're crazy. Um... But he goes on throughout his life with this narrator describing things. And he's sort of getting used to it. Strange still. But uh, he's managing to live with it until one day the narrator, as he's crossing the street, says, Little did Harold Crick know that he was about to die. <laughs> At which point, Harold Crick's like, what? He just starts talking on the street to this voice that no one else can hear. What do you mean I'm about to die? And uh, because he realizes it's a narrator's voice, that he's part of someone's story, he doesn't know what to do about it. He's a tax man, but he decides to find like someone who knows something about books. So he goes to this like preeminent New York lit crit writer guy and basically says, I think I'm part of the story. And the guy's like, you're crazy. Well, actually, he thinks he's crazy, but doesn't say it. But then listens to the story and advises him this. Well, what you have to do is figure out whether you're part of a tragedy or a comedy. What do you mean? Well, if it's a comedy, everything always turns out good, even if it looks bad. But if it's a tragedy, you have to die. And later on, um, this lit crit guy actually meets the writer and gets the manuscript and reads the story. And then meets with Harold and says, I'm sorry, Harold, I read the story. It's a great story. You have to die. <laughs> it really is a funny story and a great story. Um, this is a much better story. It's a much better story because what we do here is we meet the author of the story, Jesus, who's telling our story. But unlike an author who's just talking to us about the story, he enters into the story. He enters into the story. Jesus enters into the story, walks with us, takes our place. There's a voice saying that we deserve to die for what we do. The author takes our place and willingly dies for us. That's what's going on here in the story. Jesus is the author of life. He takes our place for us and dies in our place. He's the suffering servant who goes to the cross for us and lays down his life for us. And when we understand that, that we have the ultimate final word in Jesus, who is also the last best word for us, who lays down his life out of love for us, we'll want to listen. We'll want to live for him. We'll want to follow him. Okay, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness toward us. We pray.